everyone, I'm Carly Vina, and this is episode 318 of At Percussion. With me today, our co-host, Caleb Pickering. Hey, Caleb. Hey, how's it going? Good, good, good. How are you, Caleb? Good. I just had, so short story, I grew up in Texas, and then I lived in Vegas for a while, so Mexican food has always been like a staple for me, and when I was in Virginia, I had my heart broken so many times by Mexican food places, but me and a uh, buddy here went out last night and we tried this local joint I haven't been to and I was uh five stars I was I was very happy it was a highlight of the week I think what's the what's the name of the place for anybody that might be in your area uh El Magoy all right yeah. well happy if for you yeah if you make it to the small town of Maryville Missouri <laughs> on, your, on your way to any uh civilization yeah stop on by Awesome. Well, Ben Charles is also here. Ben, how's it going? Hey, Carly, doing well. How are you? Good. And have any good Mexican food this weekend? Uh, I have not, even though I live in Texas. <laughs> uh, making mistakes. <laughs> well, if you are listening on release date, that means today is March 3rd. What happened in music history on March 3rd, Ben? It turns out a lot. Um, there were quite a few premieres. And so just to rattle down the list and this actually there were even more than this but 1793 Haydn's Symphony 101 The Clock premieres in, in London 1842 Mendelssohn's Third Symphony Scottish premieres in Leipzig 1875 Bizet's final opera Carmen premieres in Paris it was considered a flop 1899 Strauss's Ein Leben premieres in Frankfurt 1922 was the American premiere of the concert version of Rite of Spring in Philadelphia, and 1944, Samuel Barber's Second Symphony premieres. Also in pop culture, a couple things happened. Uh, in 1955, Elvis made his TV debut, and in 1986, Metallica released their album Master of Puppets, um, which I'm not like a huge Metallica fan, but as I understand, that's one of their greatest, if not their greatest albums. Um, and then the big event I wanted to talk about today was that in 1931, the Star Spangled Banner was adopted as the national anthem of the United States. So the lyrics for the Star Spangled Banner come from a poem called Defense of Fort McHenry, or McHenry, depending on where you're looking, which was written on September 14th, 1814 by 35 year old lawyer and amateur poet Francis Scott Key after witnessing the bombing of Fort McHenry during the War of 1812. And the Library of Congress has the original publication. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see there's the first publication of those uh, lyrics. And then let's see here. Uh, it was set to a popular British song called to Anacreon in Heaven. And here is, again, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the first publication of the actual music, which uh, I was amazed is actually slightly different than what we're used to now. Uh, it's in 6-4, not 3-4, and the rhythms are slightly different, uh, which I was kind of humming through it in my head, and it was a little bit trippy for me. Um, so uh, let's see here. Uh, the Star Spangled Banner has the range of a 12th, which is considered difficult to sing. It's a very wide range for a national anthem. Because of this, the librettist has often been referred to by humorists as Francis Offkey. A little humor for you there. Uh, it was recognized for official use by the U.S. Navy in 1889 and by President Woodrow Wilson in 1916. It was made the national anthem by a congressional resolution on March 3, 1931, signed by President Herbert Hoover. Before 1931, Hail Columbia was used as a de facto national anthem, which is now used as the vice president's anthem, much like Hail to the Chief is used for the president. My Country Tis of Thee was also commonly used, and other songs considered for the national anthem included America the Beautiful. One of the most notable performances, and this is uh, very relevant considering what just happened recently in our history, was at uh, Super Bowl 25 in 1991. And that was, of course, Whitney Houston's Whitney famous Houston. performance, which is legendary. Uh, there's this sort of urban legend about the Stravinsky arrangement, that Stravinsky was arrested for his arrangement of the Star Spangled Banner. That is not true. Uh, so if you want to check out the Stravinsky version, he, he was not arrested for that. Um, and, uh, of course, America has a very complicated history with race, and the Star Spangled Banner has been the center of many protests. 
Uh, notably, a black power salute, or as the athlete called it, a human rights salute in the 1968 Olympics. And of course, the more recent kneeling during 2016 NFL games. And the California chapter of the NAACP has called for Congress to remove it as the national anthem uh, as the third stanza, which is, of course, rarely sung and, and not very well known, uh, actually has lyrics that refer to slavery. As of yet, though, this has not been sponsored by any legislators. So that's a uh, sort of brief history of the Star Spangled Banner. And that was great. You officially um, have provided us with more information on the national anthem than I ever thought. Yeah. <laughs> Did course. you choose the national anthem because we have members of the National Symphony Orchestra with us? Ah, I wish I could say I was that clever, but <laughs> it was just the only like non-premier item that, that I could think of. I actually thought about talking about Carmen because I think Carmen's got some uh, some bops in it, but that's the direction we went. <laughs> Well, good choice. Good choice. Um, we have some very special guests with us today. I am so happy to welcome Javon Gilliam, Eric Shin, and Scott Christian of the National Symphony Orchestra to the show. And for Javon, it's actually a welcome back because Javon was on the show um, back on episode 284 last spring, I think. Um, Javon was appointed principal timpanist of the National Symphony Orchestra in 2009, and he regularly performs as guest principal timpanist of the Budapest Festival Orchestra and is the timpanist of the all-Star Orchestra, which is a made-for-PBS group comprised of players from orchestras across the U.S. Javon is currently the co-director of profession studies and artist in residence at the University of Maryland and is an active clinician, having presented clinics and master classes at universities and institutions throughout the U.S. and Canada. In addition to all of this, Javon is the owner of Capital Percussion and Backline Rentals and recently opened this really beautiful rehearsal facility called The Shed on the University of Maryland campus out there in College Park. Um, Eric Shin was appointed principal percussionist of the National Symphony Orchestra in 2012, and before that he was the acting principal percussionist of the Detroit Symphony and principal percussionist of the Honolulu Symphony. Eric is also on the faculty of the University of Maryland. And in addition to his performing and teaching, he is the founder and CEO of Soul Spice, a Korean fast casual restaurant with locations throughout Washington, D.C. and in Maryland. And Scott Christian is the assistant principal timpanist and section percussionist with the National Symphony Orchestra and was officially appointed in 2019 after previously serving as an acting member. Scott is also the principal timpanist of the Cabrillo Festival in Santa Cruz, California, and has held tim uh, timpani positions with the Charlotte Huntsville and West Virginia Symphony Orchestras, the Des Moines Metro Opera, and the Erie Philharmonic. Scott is an advocate for living composers and new music and was the artistic director of the Charlotte-based new music chamber series, Fresh Ink from 2012 to 2016, and has premiered many works, including Joseph Schwantner's trio, Taking Charge. Um, welcome to the show, guys. It's so great to have you all here. Hey, thanks for having us. It's great, great to be here. Yeah. I'm just thrilled we found a time where all of you can be um, you know, in the same place. Out, outside of the Kennedy Center and, and University of Maryland. I thought we would start off um, by, by talking about some important things to consider when it comes to playing well together as a section. Um, Scott, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think our individual preparation is, is, is super important and, 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 um, and then being able to just use uh, a lot of times chamber music skills. I know that like I, I've gotten better as I've uh, been a member of the NSO, like just of being able to like, you know, really sense like what Eric is doing when he's like cueing a, a beat or the same with Javon, you know, if like I have to play bass drum and he's playing timpani or if we're doing something, do, you know, on, you know, where it's do timpani on a, on a program. Um, so just being aware of, you know, what your, 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 other percussion section members are playing at that moment and then also then how our part is fitting into the orchestra in a larger you know um you know larger concept way and um yeah and just trying to make a good ensemble i mean sometimes it might be that we're all queuing in on a, a particular instrument group or really trying to you know um you know just watch a, a motion that the conductor is doing or a bowing that a, a you know, a cellist is doing or something like that. So those are, those are some things that come to mind right off, right off the, you know, the bat. But Eric and Javon, what do you think? I mean, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head, you know, I mean, 
as a section, I think it's really important to be able to trust one another and to approach music uh, in the sense that we're using six ears rather than two. Um, you know, the way things sound from where I am at can be very different from how it sounds where Javon or Scott is. So we all have this sound concept that kind of brings everything together and we collaborate to make sure that what we're producing on stage is what we hear in our heads. I don't have anything to add. They all said it all, so that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I do have to say that when I, um, when I first started to sub with the orchestra, one of the things that I was really impressed about was this is that for the concerts that are, we have all our concerts recorded and both Javon and Eric would go up to the, where the recording booth is and, and listen back to what would happen either in the dress rehearsal, usually the dress rehearsal is also recorded. And, 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 and we would, you know, we wouldn't listen to the whole entire piece, but we would skim ahead to those some important moments that we wanted to check, you know, our balance is okay. Or, or is that the right sound we're trying to get out of the instrument and, and keep tweaking those, those things throughout the week. Um, there's a, there's a trumpet colleague of ours in the orchestra that says like the better the group, um, the, the better the performances get that the, the first performance is great, but they're all, everybody's improving throughout the whole run of the performances. So, you know, we're always trying to make those, those changes up until the last minute when we finally close that folder and the librarians pick it up and put it back into their, into the shelves. So I, I, I really appreciated that kind of commitment from Eric and Javon from, from an early, you know, just example of, of like, let's just always try to, you know, is, is there a way to get a better sound? Is there a way to, for us to get that note a little, you know, cleaner or whatever, whatever it is. Well, I love you mentioned trust and kind of just, um, I, I suppose all of you trying to make everyone sound better and play better and have better balance and timing and all of that. Um, so you mentioned um, chamber music and cueing and especially for some of our younger listeners, um, what are some of the conventions in, with cueing in the percussion section? You know, who leads and who follows, um, you know, based on what instrument you're playing? I think it really sort of depends on what's going on in the orchestra. Um, Javon, Scott, and I all have a pretty similar sense of where the beat should be. Um, we like to kind of trust our, um, our internal clock as well. And, um, you know, there are also situations where if there isn't clarity up front, we have to rely on one another. So we're all very familiar with different types of uh, motions that we use um, and also sort of depends right I mean if it's if it's just me Scott and Javon I mean I don't even have to look at these guys I just know it's going to be there when I play and that's the best right uh, but then you know you have circumstances where maybe eight different people have to place a note right with you and there are a variety of different types of cues you can utilize I mean you can you can breathe right just a slightly audible breath can be helpful uh, to sort of lead, um, you know, the way that you raise your stick, right? Um, there are a lot of little cues that, um, that can really help the ensemble playing. But in general, I mean, the best part about playing with these guys is just easy. You know, we just, it's like magic, you know? I hit the triangle and then I hear the timpani and the cymbals play at the same time. And that's, I think, really a hallmark of a really great section really awesome colleagues. I think one of the things that we do really well uh, to, to toot our own horns is that we always tend to take responsibility if there's a mistake. I think that's really important. Like if something's not right, it's probably me, or at least that's what I think first. Let me see what I can do different, or let me see if I can adjust to someone. It doesn't even have to be Scott or Eric. It can be anybody, you know, it can be a cellist, it can be the trumpet players or whatever. And, you know, I think that what makes a really great colleague is that you know, it, you try to, you, you think that you are the problem first, as opposed to going up to someone. I mean, for me playing, you know, in our hall, which is a good hall, it's not the best hall in the world. It's not the worst hall. It's a very good hall, but, you know, playing in a place that's not humidity controlled, cap heads, yada, 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 you guys know that that can be a pain, right? So intonation is important. Intonation can be wonky sometimes. And Anytime I feel like it's out of tune, my first inclination is to adjust myself. Even if I know 
that, for example, the seventh bassoon player tends to play his B flats on the low end of the spectrum. I might know that, and I might be able to adjust for that. Call them out. Give us names. Like I said, seventh, (laughs) because that doesn't exist. See, I'm smart. That's right. Good choice. Um, But like whoever it is, I, I, I am pretty astute to knowing that certain musicians in my band have particular tendencies when it comes to intonation, for sure, especially wind players and brass players that I hear every day all the time, right? Uh, and so I use that to my advantage when I'm playing, especially after the, by the second or third rehearsal, by the dress rehearsal, I realize that this particular note doesn't necessarily feel where I think it should. The perfect example is uh, Beethoven. We've recorded four out of the nine, I think, in the last couple of weeks. And uh, we did the third symphony and the first movement is an E flat and then the second movement is a C minor. Every single time, rehearsal, concert, or anything, that we'd get done with the E flats at the end of the first movement. And when we go to the second movement, which is C minor, every single time in within seconds, and I don't think it was a humidity, I would be flat. And I realized that pretty quickly. And so instead of me trying to go to the whoever, whatever musicians and say, hey guys, can you push it up? You just adjust, you just adjust. Cause all that matters is that you guys are in tune together. And so anyways, taking that responsibility first is something I think that the three of us do all the time and it's not something we've ever talked about it's just something that we kind of already know we know what to do and i think it's that sort of trust and sort of understanding that we want to strive to be better and we take our own responsibilities that allows us to sort of you know be better together quickly and that's important when you know you're dealing with 100 people and 100 different ideas of what should be done at any given point in time yeah i think Ensemble skills and developing that for you know any anybody that's watching this uh, listening that's a developing percussion percussionist is something to really consider. I, I would say the number one thing that in all the orchestras that I've played with and now with the NSO is 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 that awareness of like if you're coming into a group, can you adjust to the ensemble and figure out how to play you know together with other people and. And, and if something's not together, how to fix it in a way that um, is, is productive, you know, so that you go up to somebody and be like, hey, you know, don't maybe put blame, like, you know, oh, you're late to me. Be like, hey, it seems like I'm a little, you know, earlier I hear, you know, like, can we can we come to a consensus or can we figure out, you know, this? And sometimes it's just an awareness that, oh, okay, I'm playing with this other person or or allowing that other person to know that you're trying to make music or, you know, some kind of, you know, uh, ensemble, you know, with them that, that can really solve the problem. And, and it, it, it really helps out versus being defensive about it if you find out that, like, something isn't working. Um, and, and I know that, like, again, one of... A lot of a lot of my memories are, are from when I was starting to sub here, but like there was there was one time that we were playing, I was playing shaker on something, and the woodwinds were just a little bit changed tempo, and I went with them, and that was something Javon noticed. And so sometimes it's it's knowing when you have to go with another colleague of yours, and when you hold might, them and fold them, right? Kenny Rogers, right? You got to know when to hold yeah, them and when to fold them, right? <laughs> or when you can kind of lead, and and I think that that takes a uh, you know a lot of experience playing in groups and, and, and trying one thing and seeing if it works and just being able to be aware in, uh, of what you're trying to accomplish and develop at that time. Yeah, beautiful. I want to talk for a minute. Um, many professional orchestras play to varying degrees behind the stick, right? Like after you see what the conductor does, Um, a little bit behind and with I think freelance groups that can be really really challenging to refine does the NSO have a tendency um, as far as timing goes yes it's changed with our new music director Mm -hmm. Um, yes we do Uh, I think with our boss now uh, Nozeda John Andrea Nozeda that we play a lot more close to the ictus Um, and I I don't think we should take much more credit than anybody else, but I know me personally, uh, what's one of the reasons why I absolutely loved him. And I told him that when he first came here, uh, the previous uh, conductor who um, was very different, uh, Eschebach was very different and much more lugubrious in his motions. The orchestra sort of had to sort of adjust to that. Me personally, I think I can speak for the, all three of us. 
we prefer to have something where we can sort of play exactly where, where the ictus is, where it should be. And so it definitely has adjusted with the conductors on uh, that are on the podium. But with Nozeta, the one of the things that I enjoy is that I think that it started to translate to guest conductors as well, which for me is like a godsend. So, but there definitely is a difference and we're much more with the ictus than behind the ictus, which is what I think it used to be. At least that's my opinion. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I, I still remember, um, it was when I was an undergraduate student at University of Maryland and we go to concerts really regularly. And I remember, I don't remember the program, but sitting in the chorister, so you see the conductor and you feel like you're right there, you know, sitting behind the stage. And that was the first time I realized like, after years and years of everybody says, watch the conductor, play with the conductor, it's like, whoa, they are not, it's not it, like, how on earth are they placing these notes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I've had experience though where I've I, when I've watched uh, you know like an orchestra you know a video or like gone to a concert and trying to figure out what the, the conductor's doing sometimes that, that that communication is 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 I mean you're like oh the orchestra's playing together so there must be the conductor's doing something but like sometimes as an audience member it, it's hard to be in it unless you're actually performing and so uh, sorry my dog's being a little crazy but anyway uh so it's that's also sort of the mystery of of like what conductors are are doing up there they can they can do a gesture that like makes the whole group move in one way and and you just feel it because you're in it so so it's it, yeah it's, it's 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 interesting some conductors that we have definitely put like guest conductors will put the beat in a different place and sometimes they'll They'll even say after we do a run through of something, okay, we're both getting to know each other a little bit and and kind of being able to respond to what they're trying to show us. Um, so that there's always a, a small change with that, but it's great when we have maybe like three or four weeks in a row with our music director because things get really tight with it with the ensemble and and. Um, well, it's also really interesting these gestures too, right? I mean, I. I remember uh, one of Scott's first weeks playing with us with Eschenbach. And we were playing um, the Christopher Rouse trombone concerto, and it has these moments of absolute silence. And you know, Eschenbach would look at Scott and just kind of do this, and he would just wait. I remember <laughs> trying not to laugh, to be honest. And I just looked over at Scott, and Scott's got his poker face. And in that moment, Scott was able to take that gesture and analyze you know what Eschenbach was hearing in his head and he would produce the sound and there was this really interesting interchange that happened between Eschenbach and Scott then it was almost like a like a game of like uh you know they're they're playing chicken kind of then then Eschenbach would wait a little bit more and do something even more vague you know and then Scott would <laughs> wait and kind of like pull his eyebrow up and do something it was just cool <laughs> You know, and every every music director has you know these different uh, qualities to how they conduct. I mean, uh, I always remember Eschenbach's bolero, right? Uh, he, he has this really interesting interpretation where he doesn't conduct; um, he uses his eyes. And um, you know, he would look at me, and he just goes like that, and I have to start. And um, pretty much throughout the bulk of the piece, he's just standing there conducting with his eye. And, you know, when the big, big uh, B section happens, you know, he would just do this huge flamboyant gesture and then he starts conducting and it's very grandiose. Um, but that's the fun of it, right? Um, that's what makes Bolero interesting the hundredth time you do it. You know, it's like, well, what, what does this conductor want to draw from this piece? And as a musician, how do we get that sensation from from an eye twitch. Yeah. We also, I, I'll chime in really quickly, I think talking about how we do, how we play as a section is usually uh, to dumb it down. There's two ways you can listen, right? Or you can listen with your eyes and your ears, right? You can either follow what you see or you can go with what you hear. And I think for us, we tend to generally use our ears before we use our eyes, at least the three of us. And so when we're going, if something is going along before us, you just kind of tag along. You don't need to be the, you know, the, you don't need to lead if you don't need to lead, right? So playing that, and I think 
for me, I found, and I've had several of our colleagues come up to me over the years, and they just say that it's just it's easy for us to follow you, Javon, because you just kind of lay it down. And all I'm doing is listening. All I'm doing is I'm not trying to be the hero. I'm just placing it where I think it should be, and I try to keep it steady and consistent. And so, like, and a lot of, and I say that to say that a lot of other musicians, a lot of other musicians in our band, I think, choose to start by listening with their eyes first. You know. And it's in knowing who that is and knowing how to work with, dare I say, manipulate those two uh, juxtapositions. I think that's where the magic, sometimes frustration lies, but I think that's where the fun happens right there. Yeah. Well, that, may, that reminds me of a story just this last week, we did a, a run out concert at Howard University and we, we played um, the two George Walker symphonias that we recently recorded along with those Beethoven symphonies. and. Um, and Javon was gracious enough to let me record uh, Beethoven four, and we played that at that show. And um, during the rehearsal, just because of the, the the stage and because of the Walker setup, timpani were way over in the corner, and that's where I did the Beethoven rehearsal. And I could not hear anything, and it felt very uncomfortable. And so after they struck the percussion in the performance, I went and asked uh, our music director if I could move the timpani to the center, and and he, he made a comment about how you know that would make his job easier too. And so, I mean, our job as percussionists also do, you know, help the conductor. I mean, we have to, I think there's, it's, it, it, the, the conductor is responding to the musicians and also what we're doing. And so if, 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 if as percussionists, we're also able to give something that the orchestra can latch on to the conductors, it makes their job easier because the orchestra doesn't have to latch on to their stick as much and they might be able to do more with their hands to phrase or you know, stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's the combination of um, leading and following at the same time. Well, uh, real quick to follow up on like helping yeah. the conductor. I remember when we were in Miami, we saw Frank Epstein do a do a clinic. Uh, and he said that he had to tell Seiji Ozawa, like, you you can't conduct like that. I, I have to pick these huge symbols up like you, you can't just go. <laughs> And so, yeah, like right there is a great example of like helping the conductor so that you can play better. Um, but I just like even in our little like half hour we've been together here, the three of you such clear like you clearly have great chemistry just personality wise. Um, and I remember yeah. hearing Matt Matt Strauss talk about like playing, you know, he played with the same trumpet player in the Houston Symphony for like 20 years or something like that. And I think as students, uh, at most, we get four years of playing with the same person. And like, that's, I think that's, that has to be different about being a professional. Uh, and like, I had three fantastic years playing alongside Carly, and I think we got to read each other pretty well. Uh, but um, do you feel like your, your sort of personal connections play, play well or play into your playing as a section? And then also, especially for those freelancers out there, I think we've all had that gig with the person that's kind of maybe not so cool and maybe a little more difficult to get along with. Do you have any, any pro tips for dealing with that person? We won't name any names here. <laughs> just do your job. I mean, if you just go in there and nobody, even if you are the jack wagon, nobody wants, sure. you, 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 nobody wants to work with a jack wagon, right? Unless you are that person, right? And so as far as like the freelancers that have to deal with difficult leaders, section leaders or whatever, just do your job, show up on time, don't try to stand out, like, you know, do do the best you can and that work, let the work speak for itself. Um, we are big proponents of, you know, being good human beings. I think that's what makes the three of us so close. We're all, you know, we just try to live our lives the way that, you know, treat others the way we want to be treated. And so like, we just want to work with good people. All the subs that come in that play with us, like, that's my first question. I have no say, right, because Eric's sick, Shannon, so he chooses. And he knows, and we don't even have to talk about it anymore. Just as long as they're not a jack wagon, that's all I care about. So they don't mess up our chemistry, mess up our vibe, mess up our sort of situation. Because I think we all realize how good we have it with the chemistry that we have as friends, as people, right? And then the music becomes the music comes second. So that's what I, that's my advice to freelancers. Um, somebody else can chime in on the other stuff. So. Well, I remember when I won my audition, uh, John and Erica were like, okay, well, now you're stuck with us for 30 years or something like that, you know, and which was like, obviously, I was just thrilled. But I think thinking about this as like a long term relationship, the same kind of work that you would put into that, you know, and being kind and, and you know, 
Javon and Eric see me on my best days and my worst days, you know, and they're gracious enough to, 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 you know, be good to me in those, those moments, you know, we're, we're all in different situations where we're in very high stress stuff, you know, with the performing and, and, and to be able to be supportive and, and to know, you know, how somebody's feeling and be there for, for somebody and support them is, 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 you know, has made all the difference for me to feel comfortable on stage. And so I'm, you know, really thankful for for that. And, and, you know, and to be honest, actually, we say that to each other quite often, you know, we were like, we're lucky. We're, we're really grateful that, that we get along that we, you know, and, and, and I think that's okay to say to people when you're, when you, you know, people need to hear that, want to hear that. Um, and, and it, it makes, you know, it can help you get through the week, get through a performance, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think um, when I was younger, I think I had this idea that in orchestra jobs and teaching jobs, like you just have to be the very best player on that, you know, on that day when you play your audition or for teaching, like, well, you just have to be the best player and the best teacher and have the best resume. Um, and there's so much more to it as far as fit goes. Like it also has to be the right fit, I think, personally and musically. Um, and I think you all have that. It's so evident that you have that personally and musically. Like you all play it together so well. Um, and I feel that now in my position at, at Shenandoah University. Um, so I'm wondering during the audition process or the trial period or before a musician gets tenure, how do you tell if someone's the right fit for the section and for the orchestra? I mean, it's, it's like trying to remember why you fell in love with your significant other, right? I mean, you just kind of know, like, within the first minute, like, you're pretty sure. And then every day just becomes a reinforcement of what you originally felt. Um, and, you know, I guess in less vague terms, it's just, you know, it's just this sense of trust again, you know? Um, and, you know, when I'm working with a colleague, I'm always looking for someone that first and foremost is there to serve the music, right? Like, we want to put out the best um, possible performance that we can. But at the same time, you know, if I'm hanging out, I don't really want to talk about triangle beaters. You know, I, I want to talk about, you know, why, you know, why the Falcons completely donked it, you know, when we're in the Super Bowl and how depressing that, you know, I'd rather talk about things like that. So, you know, a lot of it is, is a, like a, a certain ease, right, on stage, being on the same wavelength. Because um, it can, there is such a thing as trying too hard too, right? Um, to kind of circle back also to maybe freelancers out there, um, you know, if you're trying to play with another person, sometimes it's just easy to just, just to just do it, right? Rather than uh, trying to figure out, you know, how how do we do this? How do we talk through it? Some things you just kind of do, right? And figure out on the fly. Um, but as far as the chemistry goes, I mean, it's really about just being a good fit and being able to support everyone on stage being, you know, is this someone I want to sit next to for the next 30 years? I mean, that's, that's probably the biggest question on all of our minds when we go to work. And we're having to evaluate someone for say like tenure or something like that. I mean, generally speaking, I mean, if you've gotten to that point, you can probably play the notes, right? But um, your personality um, will affect things that, you know, not just, you know, do I like this person, but how you play music, right? If it's someone who is very aggressive, is this someone that's gonna, you know, play a thing in a certain way that's, that, that's combative, you know, rather than collaborative? Um, so the personality thing really takes effect on stage. So um, I guess to that effect, we're really looking for the good fit personality-wise because it always transfers over to the music. So I wonder, what, what would you say is the musical personality of the NSO timpani and percussion section? Hmm. I, think, wild. I don't know. No, that's not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of a word, I guess. I mean, I can talk a little bit, I think, about our like sound concept and our sound ideas. We all have the same sort of concept, same the similar concept where I think we want to sound as clean as possible. 
at all at all time, right? You know, I mean, we want to make sure that everything we do, everything that we work so hard to try to produce, the sounds that we try to produce, the colors, the tones, and everything are are heard and are are, are enjoyed by the audience, by uh, you know our colleagues as much as we enjoy them ourselves. And so, I think having that same sort of similar concept of sound and for like how to produce that same concept. I mean, we all lift off of the head. We all try to play in sort of similar playing spots where we're on similar size, you know, instruments. Like I, I see these guys and I see like, you know, when one of them plays the triangle and the other person plays the triangle, it's very similar. And Scott's a lefty, Eric's a righty, but it's still very similar what it looks like, you know, even from my end. And so I think having that sort of similar concept of sound allows us to even more uh, homogenize our personalities, our playing and everything sort of, it sort of all congeals uh, into one big, NSO percussion timpani blob, if you will, in a good way, right? I feel like I should Photoshop in later, uh, uh, you know, what the percussion timpani blob looks like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the imagery there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering, was, was there anything that surprised you about playing in the NSO after you joined the orchestra? Anything different from other orchestras you played with? Oh, man, I would say that biggest difference and Scott and I talk about this all the time is is just how how much the job is changing you know um, in school we practiced you know so much on the snare drum the mallets you know the core instruments accessories but I mean nowadays you know you we have to go on stage and be able to lay down you know some Latin beats like in a really legitimate sort of way you know different styles sometimes you know we, we play with Trey Anastasio, we play with Nas, right? Or Kendrick Lamar. And to be able to shift to all these different styles, I feel like the what's required percussionist is it's slowly becoming more almost like a studio musician, right? Where you have to kind of learn to play all the instruments, not just the um, classical uh, instruments. And it, uh, it's, it's kind of a wild ride, a fun one too. Yeah, I think I think the level of pops concerts that we do, you know, what Eric is speaking to is is at such a high level, and um, and we do a lot of like fun concerts. Ben Folds does a declassified series where we'll take uh, singer songwriters that he'll bring in, and they'll hire an orchestrator and they'll orchestrate that music, and a lot of times those parts will get to us pretty late, and and the percussion writing they don't want to they're trying to do it without using a drum set, so sometimes they're trying to find those colors out of the percussion section and uh and memory that i have early on of eric was is 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 rehearsal was over those pieces were were, were done and and a lot of people would just you know leave for the evening but eric stuck around and was talking to the orchestrator and talking to the the musician about like you know like how can we get that that right color and i remember him like there's like castanets but the castanets were too bright so we like put like a towel over them. And we were just like really trying to work in a collaborative way to come up with trying to make the best product and not thinking that any concert that we do is um, is at a, a different level than another concert. Um, you know, we I think I think putting that same effort into the Beethoven Symphony as we are doing with these other, you know, Pops performers is is really quite exciting when you then get to play that music at such a high level. Um, I mean, if I've had a, you know, big conga book, I'll just, I'll, I'll spend the, you know, two weeks prepping some conga licks. You know, Javon has a story about that where it was bleeding on stage and he had to text me uh, during a rehearsal to stop practicing my open tones on the conga. But, <laughs> but, it, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's really awesome to have a job also that, that allows us to do that, to be able to sit there and really geek out about sounds. Um, I mean, Eric, and I early on also like brought like all our bass drums on stage and did different things with the tunings and muffling and the sticks and 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 it, it was and out of that we discovered stuff and and that has made our bass drum sound evolve and into something that really works in our hall and I, I know like uh, Javon's uh, uh, timpani sticks that he has with Innovative when he was getting prototypes he he would have me play you know. Ah you know, version A and version B, and he would be out on the 
you know, the podium. And he could always tell which was the new version. I mean, there, there was really very, very sensitive to what the kind of quality of, uh, that he was trying to get, wanting those sticks to, to you know, be like. And, and that is, is, is super enjoyable to just really get into that nitty gritty sound stuff with these guys, yeah. Yes, we are all nerds. That is basically what Scott's saying, yeah. Mm -hmm. so. But you don't want to talk about triangle beaters later when you're getting a drink. It's different. <laughs> it's different. Line up all the bass drums on stage, <laughs> all the mallets. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, um, what are some ways that having an orchestra job is different from preparing for one? Um, I think we all know the skills you need to win an audition are not necessarily exactly the same skills that you need to be able to play well with an orchestra. Um, what are some of the skills you learned on the job and how did you find the development of these skills went for you? Uh, I think one of the things that was the most interesting, at least for me, and it's always, I guess, evolving is a common theme in this conversation, uh, is how we all have to sort of find where we play like literally within the beat like we all have eric it's kind of have, have the same sort of idea but because our music director like i said was sort of different with his ictus where to play with the, our previous music director and neither was better or worse i love some of eschelbach's interpretations of some of the stuff he did i think it was great but like uh, the whole goal at the end of the day is that we all play together the orchestra as a whole plays together right there's no right or wrong and so trying to find that and like like Scott said, I mean, listening to the recordings on a Friday evening before the Friday night concert of Thursday's concert is something that like, you know, all of us have been doing for years. And so learning how to adapt and adjust quickly uh, in the moment on the same show, I think is something that is definitely you, you don't really learn that in school. Um, and I think the other thing is just being flexible, like. I've been asked to do some, you know, some things that I would not normally do. Uh, you know, Tiffany use these particular sticks, use this particular type of muffling, muting or whatever on, you know, uh, standards. And you would ask me 10, 15 years ago, I might've gotten angry and might've rebelled in some sort of way, but I'll just do it. These, these days I'll just do it because I know that in a year, two, three, four, it'll come back up again, you know? And so like, it's almost like, you know, Eric said, embracing the changes, embracing the differences that come from week to week with different conductors. And, you know, that's something, again, I don't think you learn in school. When you go to school, you learn sort of the way that you do it. And if somebody else does it a different way or if there's a different interpretation, that's not always accepted or that's not always, you know, uh, it may be frowned upon or poo-pooed, right? And so uh, having that sort of openness uh, and flexibility, I think is something that comes with experience. I was going to say, it's it's so nice to hear about this, like listening to the Thursday recordings on Friday before the concert to make sure you have the best show possible. Because I'm with caliber of musicians like yourself, like you could not do that and it would be just fine. Like you could play the concert and I'm sure the conductor would be happy, but it's it's so nice that after all these years, like you still care enough to to go for that level of detail. Every week, we've been doing it every week. We, we show up and we show up all the time. And it's usually just the three of us, not to say that other musicians don't do it. But Charles, our recording engineer, knows to expect a text from one of us saying, we'll see you in a minute. And he's always been very accommodating. One, one thing that I am always amazed at is down in our percussion room where we practice and also a lot of the instruments are stored. One, uh, Javon has these binders of every piece that he's played. So how he does, how he does it is, is that he gets, he always copies whatever piece you know if it's a new piece it goes into the binder but he has a, a smaller three ring binder that has a few programs coming up in it and that he takes out of these larger binders and if you look i mean he's played thousands and thousands of pieces of music on the timpani and performed them and i think i think to go from you know what might be the 26 standard you know timpani excerpts or whatever to being able to take that into being able to play thousands of pieces of music well, or, you know, not only be able to play Porgy and Bess, but can you really play mallet instruments? Can you really play them new pieces in a musical way and play them with the same accuracy? I, I, I remember somebody asked me about the difference between preparing an excerpt and something that I do in the orchestra. And I think it's actually the same level of detail that we, we, we try to put in into the pieces that we also play on the stage. 
Um, and, and that that could be an excerpt if we had to demonstrate it in, in that way that we demonstrate excerpts in an audition. So I, I think, you know, for, for developing musicians, especially to get to know a lot of repertoire, get to know a lot of different styles, be able to like take your instrument and, and be able to know that like if a, if a different um, triangle part came up, then the three that seem to be on auditions that you could have some way of approaching that that would make sense. Yeah, you kind of hinted at it with Javon's level of organization. Uh, but what do y'all think are some of the most important non-musical skills that a potential future or current orchestral percussionist or timpanist need to have in their bag of tricks? A lot of it depends on, I guess, your position too. Um, as a principal, I mean, you spend hours organizing things. You have to be an organized person and you have to really enjoy it. Um, a lot of these pops charts are very intricate, um, especially the movies. Um, it requires hours and hours of research to figure out how to orchestrate the parts, to divvy up the parts in a way that's helpful to my colleagues so they don't, you know, we don't have to have, you know, four xylophones on stage. It takes a lot of time. Um, it uses, uses a different part of your brain for sure. Uh, so organization, super important. Um, you know, having a good taste in, in whiskey and beers also incredibly important for the hang, um, so important. Um, and, you know, just being able to understand the needs of people around you, right? I mean, the stage crew have different needs, the library has different needs, and you have to be, um, you know, you have, you have to understand how to navigate um, all different types of people in the orchestra. Um, you know, for us, the horn section's right in front of us, right? So if we're playing a pretty unfamiliar piece of music that has, you know, a gigantic slapstick hit out of nowhere, I'm gonna give them a heads up, you know? I'm gonna give them a little warning, you know? In rehearsals, I'm never gonna go whole hog on them either, you know, just out of respect for their ears. I mean, um, just like little things like that, uh, just going the extra mile to show that you care for the people around you uh, and that you play music in a responsible, sort of way. These are all like little things that are super important. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure with Javon and uh, Scott, they, they probably have some in interesting things to say here too, yeah? <laughs> Mine's easy, dude. Just don't be a jack wagon. Like that, that's, that's, the, that's the thing you need to have in your toolbox. Be a good person. And if you are a good, be a good person. If you're a good to decent player, you'll get more work with us than if you are a great player in a jack wagon every time. I mean, Eric's really helpful, like with that the part assignment stuff. It, what I what I find it kind of funny is actually, I mean, our, like our season will be announced March twenty something, right at the end of March. Probably the next day, Eric will have a Google Doc sheet with all the part assignments. There's truth to that. As, as much as we know, but then that allows Javon to then figure out like when I can go move over on timpani, you know, and we we get a lot of that stuff coordinated quickly so that we can like see what our season's going to look like. Um, you know, I think also just as a, as a percussion, being in a percussion section, understanding, you know, if you have the role of, uh, you know, principal percussion, one of the things that I really enjoy about Eric is, is that, I mean, he, he, not on top, on top of like, you know, playing, you know, some really tough parts, he's always lending an ear to across the section to try to figure out like, you know, what can be, you know, a little bit better. And, and in rehearsals, things are going by rapid fire. So sometimes he just has to come up to somebody and say something really quick, you know, and, and, and then I think it's important for the person receiving that to understand that, like, you know, this is just, you know, it, it, it just, let's just make that switch. It, and sometimes things have to happen so quickly and, and, um, and it, yeah, so just that flexibility um, to, to, to listen and, and not take it personally, because Eric is just trying to make things better. Um, and yeah, so, so being able to, to take, you know, some criticism on from people, you know, like, or, you know, if a, and a colleague comes up to you in, in another section and, you know, just asks about something, you know, to, to try to figure out the, a positive solution to it. It's helpful. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible how in some of these rehearsals, I mean, you'll, I mean, uh, like for instance, we do like a pretty big 4th of July show 
And, um, you know, Jack's done this so many times with us. And I remember my first year in the orchestra and, uh, you know, the big parts, the marches, of course, you know, it's play all the great hits, great Sousa hits. And, you know, it's my first year in the orchestra and I'm you know, really excited, but also kind of nervous, right? Because I know this is going to be televised and, you know, I'm really looking forward to running this through. And um, we go through the rehearsal, you know, the way it works is the morning of the first rehearsal, you get the music about an hour before the rehearsal. And so, you know, I'm there just kind of parked outside the library. I get the parts, I have 30 minutes to put them in books, get the show together. So, you know, time is really limited here. And um, I remember the first rehearsal, never got to the marches, you know, so I figured, okay, that's, that's fine. We'll get to it in the dress rehearsal. Dress rehearsal happens and, you know, we get to the march and Jack's like, oh, you know, all these, it'll be fine. Day of the concert, he comes up to me. He's like, oh, oh yeah, I just, you know, I know this is your first year doing this. Um, you know, it's fine. You know, I just need you to play drum cadence, you know, before we start the marches and play some cadences in between every single march and you'll be fine. And I'm thinking, okay, I got 30 minutes before the show starts. I got to play a drum cadence when he points at me. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of things that happen on the fly. Um, so you never know um, in a rehearsal if that's going to be um, the last time that you get to play something. So it's really important to be able to communicate these sort of changes or little notes. Um, I guess in school, you have the luxury of several different rehearsals, but more often than not, we get one shot at it, um, especially the pop shows. Usually it's just you play everything once and then boom, you're in the show. So uh, that flexibility, I think Scott kind of hits on a really good point. And it's something that's uh, really important as a professional, just being able to make those changes really, really quick. And um, yeah, it can be really exciting sometimes. Yeah, and that comes into just preparing your part. Have, have I write, I, I use my, my iPad when I, when I perform because I, just write in so many cues. Like I write in rhythmic cues. I write in, you know, what what instrument is playing because it just, it, I, I, my goal is never to have a wrong entrance. It just, just, it's just set a standard for myself. Try to set that standard, you know, that like from the first rehearsal, I mean, you know, in a symphony orchestra, you just run the piece um, and it could be, you know, world premiere of a piece and, and you just want to have all those entrances to be there and, and know how that all fits in. Um, have all your sticks coordinated so that that's always the same. If you have to take a picture of a setup, you know, we do that a lot. Our stage crew does that, you know, and that's often helpful or I'll just do that just to make sure the sticks are always in the same, same spot. Make sure you have enough stands, you know, for when you running over to some other instrument, some of those logistical setup things become, you know, pretty important. Yeah, especially especially with limited rehearsal, like you're talking about. And for sure, you don't want to have that feeling of, oh, I wish I could do this just one more time to fix it. Yeah. yeah. So before we wrap up, I would love to hear um, if you all have any favorite, beautiful, wonderful memories of your time playing together so far. <laughs> uh, so... Ken Harbison, he's just amazing percussionist, um, recently retired. And, um, you know, he, he was just such an amazing colleague and, you know, just one of the friendliest, warmest people that you could ever work with. And just, you know, till his last day on stage, you know, he's always had this kind of like thirst and curiosity for percussion and, you know, finding like new ways to do things. And um, I don't know how this happened, but, um, <laughs> I think, uh, Javon, you'll have to remind me how this whole, the, the whole prank started. Uh, but <laughs> I was wondering which one you, what was about to come out here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the the Glock one? The, uh, yeah, of course. Of course. It's gonna be me. Um, how did we start this? You keep talking the story. I'm going to think this through because I think it started before your time. Right? Keep going. I'll, I'll have an answer by the time you're done. Yeah. Awesome. Well, so one of our colleagues, was sick for um, a run out show <laughs> and someone had to play Glock on Stars and Stripes forever. So, you know, Javon's like, hey, you know, I haven't played Glock in a while, but I'll play it, you know, it's fine. 
So he comes over and <laughs> and Ken uh, he switches the two of the bars. Is the G and the D sharp? You know? Yeah, and it's, so everything is a half step up, and uh, and I just remember Javon <laughs> coming in the first entrance, and you know he he knows something's up, right? But the amazing thing was after he played it, you know, I, he just starts laughing and he fixes it. He makes an adjustment and he, he crosses his hands and he just plays all the right notes. But uh, I'll never forget that. Uh, Jamal will never play Glockenspiel with the National Symphony Orchestra now because of that. But yeah, I don't um, trust John, man. Nope. Legendary. Yeah, uh, that, I, I think that happened first when uh, another colleague of ours, Charlie, uh, Scott's predecessor, was always one of the first people to split, to leave early. And he would grab his bag and he'd be out, he'd be in his car before his wife, who's also in the orchestra, would be in and they'd drive off and they'd be home before anybody else. And I think it was Eric's predecessor, Tony, that one time tied Charlie's bag to his chair. So he couldn't leave. Quickly. <laughs> And you have to know these guys to understand, like Tony's sort of a wild child, sort of like high energy guy. And Charlie's the complete opposite, deadpan, like leave me alone, sort of grumpy, grump a bump, right? And so he was not happy about this. And I think that's, that was the first sort of prank that I remember happening on stage. And then uh, there was a couple others. I think we put like some sandbags in Charlie's bag once or twice to try to get him to not leave. And then the whole Glock thing happened. And I tried to get Ken back a few times. I was able to do it once on a run out. Uh, was that Saber Dance? I think it was Saber Dance. But like we we all we have these sort of running jokes where we try to you know uh, when it when it, when, it, when it's appropriate. Like you know probably not in the masterworks at least at least not yet. Uh, but somewhere where you know it's just an inside joke and that's it's that sort of banter. I think that has always been there even before us. Uh, that keeps it keeps us uh, young and spry. I guess. But, you know, I, I got to chime in in all seriousness, though. I mean, you know, like, you know, we have this great relationship between the three of us. But I will say, you know, I, I've played in a lot of amazing orchestras. I've had, you know, the, the, the just great experiences. But I mean, Javon is by far like the greatest timpanist I've ever played next to. You know, I mean, and it's, you know, it's super easy to say that because he's a nice, nice dude to work with, too. But I mean... Uh, I remember uh, when you played Chike for there was um there was a week where right before the show you know we we're having a kind of this conversation about just you know how we've played this piece so many times and you know you study it in school and and I was just kind of joking with Javon I was like you know I think I could probably play this one without the music right I mean and Javon's like you know I think I could too. Let, let, let's just, let's just do it. And this was right before the show. And I totally punked out. I used the music, right? <laughs> and, you know, I didn't think he was going to do it. And then I kind of looked over at Javon and there's no stand there. And I looked at him like, dude, are you serious? And he's like, <laughs> the conductor <laughs> comes on stage. I'm like, oh man. And I, I tell you, he just nailed it you know, just absolutely nailed it. And um, that's just one of those memories that, you know, just incredible. Just uh, so lucky to be on stage with these guys. So, you know, a, a few weeks ago, Carly told us about the premiere of Chike 4 and how it, it, it did not go well. It was not well received and how it was a muddle of sound or something. Maybe the tempest was just doing it without music. They didn't have it happened. memorized, man. <laughs> you gotta memorize it. If you wanna do it right, you gotta memorize it. <laughs> what about you, Scott? Any Happy, funny memories. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if this was totally known by everybody, but Eric, Javon, and I were all at CIM at one for one year together, and so the fact that we're all in the same band together is is pretty special. And 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 yeah, I'm just really grateful to be be you know be able to play music with them often, you know. And and um, one concert early on when uh, when uh, there was the, the position was open and they were bringing some people in, was a Mahler II concert that Javon had me come and play second timpani next to him. And and we all took a picture together, the three of us. 
and that's been my you know my lock screen on my ipad ever since and and i looked at that getting ready for the audition and and just so it was the start of a lot of really wonderful memories and um and really i think what eric is also getting at with you know especially with javon and but but just you know for me with eric and javon is is that is is the consistency of hearing them play stuff every single week and them doing something that you just go wow and and it, them always doing something special on stage and 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 it's 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 really cool to be loud by your colleagues regularly. So yeah, very cool. Wonderful, I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's so great to hear um, from all of you, kind of behind the scenes view of what it's like to play in a section together. Really appreciate it. Thanks, you guys. It's been great. Thank you. <laughs>